Growing up, my early childhood was full of lots of wonderful experiences, but also some really significantly painful experiences. By the time I was around 10 years old, um, I was walking to school one day, and a person on a street corner offered the kid that was walking to school with me and I a uh, psychoactive substance. Asked a few questions to some older siblings in the neighborhood and eventually kind of figured it out. So my first experience with the psychoactive substance was at 10 years old. What happened after we were successful with that it is not a lot like on the outside, but inside my soul and in my brain, my self, so to speak, learned that a way to manage the pain of some of my traumatic experiences in childhood was to use a psychoactive substance. That first time using a psychoactive substance turned into a second and a 20th and a 200th. And by the time I was a junior in high school, I dropped out and was using psychoactive substances you know, full time. From the time I dropped out as a junior, I was in eight different treatment centers trying to get sober from psychoactive substance use. One of these places, it was a specialized trauma treatment center. And I was 17 at the time, so I was with the adults. And so I'm um, sleeping in front of the nurse's station because I'm a high risk patient. And I wake up one morning and there is a person who looks to be about my age drawing a picture of me, which is strange, but considering that I'm in an inpatient, you know, psychiatric trauma treatment unit, it felt like par for the course. So me and this young lady became friends and her story was similar, childhood trauma, and she was too old to be with the adolescents, but really we were too young to be with the adults. And she shared with me that uh, when she got out, she was gonna go back home and her family was selling her uh, to support their substance abuse habit. And I said to myself, like, forget that, uh, we're getting out of here. We, Jimmy, open a door and sneak out and run away from this uh, treatment facility. And so we were in, on the outskirts of New Orleans at the time and slept under bridges and hitchhiked our way to the inner city. And we were sitting outside of a McDonald's and this person walks up and says, hey, are you guys homeless? And at that moment it occurred to me like, I am actually homeless. Yeah, used psychoactive substances really um, intensely and my life just started to deteriorate. And so for the next four years, I was a really, really hardcore, IV drug user. I was down to about 127 pounds and was so dehydrated, my hair was falling out and um, was really knocking on death's door. And I remember blacking out and I came to in the driver's seat of my car and blacked out again and came to on my maternal grandparents' front lawn. And so I had OD'd and they nursed me back to health and uh, they asked me if I wanted to go to church with them. And so I decided like, my life is in shambles. You know, I'm the biggest scumbag, junkie, loser on the planet. I might as well give church a shot. Good morning, Trace. It's an honor for me to get to share with you this morning. I'm Dr. T, one of the teaching pastors here. If you're visiting for the first time, thank you so much for joining us. Um, 
Sometimes when I tell that part of my story, which that narrative is really the, the lowest part of my rock bottom, I say the guy speaking to you today at one point in time was an escaped mental patient. And that's supposed to be funny, it kinda is, it's tragic. So to lighten the mood, a um, couple of things to get started today. I wanna, I wanna teach you what has been just really transformational uh, for me to have learned over the last uh, 18 years of my journey into a uh, follower of Jesus Christ and a person who is free from uh, substance abuse. Um, the content I have tried to make as PG eight, nine, or 10 as I can, but some of what we'll discuss today is gonna be triggering because a talk about addiction uh, merits first a discussion about pain. And before we get into a discussion about pain, I wanna give you something that I wish I would have gotten when I was in the middle of just my most painful, agonizing season of life, and that's an apology. And so I'm, we're gonna just start heavy and fast today, and I'm gonna ask you to just attune your spirit right now, open your heart. If you don't mind, sit back in your chair. And if you would, close your eyes for me. And I wanna to apologize to our church as a group for the pain that you have experienced in life this side of heaven. Lord God, in the name of Jesus, allow the words I'm about to say to sink deeply this morning. Trace Church, I am sorry. I really am, so I'm gonna say it again. I am sorry for every single hurt you have endured in life this side of heaven. God, let healing take place this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. In life this side of heaven, Trace, this is not a conversation we were supposed to have. It, pain was not God's plan. Pain wasn't God's original plan. You are not supposed to know what the pain of betrayal or abandonment or neglect or abuse is supposed to feel like. Pain was not the plan. And I don't have time to go into this in detail if you wanna fight me over this, you can, I'll win. Um, there's a lot of theology I could unpack, but it is never God's will for sin to occur and it's not God's plan for people to get hurt. So I wanna give you one text because that's all I have time for this morning. Genesis chapter one, verse 31. This is the first chapter of the Bible. This is the very last verse in the first chapter. And God has just literally spoken the universe into existence. And five times before this specific verse, God has called what he has created good. He looks at something, he's like, hey, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. And then man is created, creation is finished, and God saw what he had made, and it was very good. And there was morning, the sixth day. For so many years, I have thought about this verse and that phrase, very good, what what is the Bible teaching us right there? And the Bible is not commenting there on something that was present at this moment in time, as much as the phrase very good describes something that wasn't present 
at that moment in time. And what wasn't present in Genesis chapter one, verse 31, was sin. Sin was not present. Sin doesn't enter into the scene until Adam and Eve disobey the one command God had given them. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge. The deck was totally stacked in their favor. And they disobeyed and sin happened. And because of sin, the second most transformational force in life this side of heaven became a reality, pain. Pain in life is the second most transformational, motivating, influential, compelling feature of life as we know it. And the reason that pain is so influential and motivating and compelling is because God in his sovereignty integrated into our design as humans, a pain relief seeking compulsion. So even though pain was not part of God's original plan, God in his sovereignty had a plan to manage pain. And that is to embed in human beings a pain relief seeking reflex or instinct. So for the sake of this discussion, let's talk about pain in two separate categories. The first type of pain we'll discuss is physical pain. I'll try to prove my point here. Imagine Trace Church that you touch a hot stove. Now, some of you don't have to imagine because you've touched one and you hadn't just done it once. You're stubborn like me and you've touched it four or five times to see how long you could tolerate the pain. All right, but when you touch a hot stove, what happens? Do you think to yourself, man, the kinetic energy that's transferred up to the stovetop by the electrons in that current are now uh, transmitting kinetic energy into my hand, which is then being passed from neuron to synapse to neuron all the way to my brain. You're not thinking that. If you're thinking that, I want you to request some prayer for me after service today, okay? Because <laughs> you need some prayer, all right? You, you don't have to think, Trace. You touch a hot stove, instinctively, reflexively, compulsively, you withdraw your hand. Pain relief, seeking compulsion or instinct. Now, the second category of pain we experience in life is emotional pain. And your brain compulsively and instinctively and reflexively seeks relief from emotional pain like it does from physical pain. But here's a question for you. How do we relieve emotional pain in life. Now, you're a bunch of wonderful people who are spiritually mature and emotionally intelligent, so you're gonna give me the right answer and we're in a church setting. This is usually what I hear when I ask a church this question. T, you, you pray about it. You pray about it. You take your pain to the Lord in prayer and he helps you. Or, or uh, Trent, you talk to, talk to someone you trust about it. Talk to someone about your pain. Or you dig into the word, Trent, you study, and God just whispers things into your heart that help promote your healing. And you're right. And all those are great answers and they work. But what if you experience profound emotional pain when you're five years old? Or seven? Or 10? And if that happens, you have not yet developed the skill set to pray through your pain or talk with, with a trusted other through your pain or study God's word 
through your pain? And so the answer to that question early in life is, you don't know how to relieve emotional pain until you know. And the second your brain experiences something that provides you with a little bit of emotional pain relief, a reinforcing effect occurs and your brain drives you back to that thing again and again and again and again, every time you feel emotional pain. So everything I've just discussed was discovered by researchers in the medical community in the late 1980s. I wanna tell you this story and share with you what they discovered. So in 1980, at the San Diego Department of Preventative Medicine, two bariatric physicians were managing a weight loss clinic. And this clinic helped men and women uh, 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 find and maintain a healthy body weight. And they started to look at the people who had dropped out of their program. And they noticed something really surprising and really counterintuitive, not what they expected. And what they found is that the people who performed the best in their weight loss program were the people who were most likely to drop out. And they were shocked. And so they decided we're gonna go and do in-depth clinical interviews with 200 of the people who dropped out and ask them, why did you drop out if you were getting such good results from your treatment? And in 200 in-depth clinical interviews, what these researchers discovered is over 95% of the, of the individuals who dropped out of their program experienced severe and profound childhood trauma. And in that moment, they knew there was a link, but they didn't really understand it. So they start to present their findings everywhere they can. And in the early 1990s, the director of Kaiser Permanente fun, picked up their research and said, this is incredible. If what you guys is saying is true, if what you guys are saying is true and you can prove it in the literature, this would be revolutionary. And so they funded a longitudinal study to gauge the impact of adverse childhood experiences on overall well-being in adulthood. And what they found revolutionized how we understand medicine and mental health. And so they developed a 10 question survey that they used to gauge the, the magnitude of a person's early childhood adversity. And I'm gonna read you the 10 questions on this survey. It's Googleable, it's the ACES survey. This is really, really important research. Some of this can be triggering. I have softened some of the language to make it appropriate for this audience. But I do wanna just give you a heads up. And if you need to take a second, we wanna support you in that. So you're not gonna uh, uh, distract us if you need to step out. But these are the 10 questions the ACES survey asks. Question number one. Did a parent or other adult in the household often or very often swear at, insult, put you down or humiliate you? Did a parent or other adult in the household often or very often act in a way that made you afraid that you might be physically hurt? Question number two, did a parent or other adult in the household often or very often push, grab, slap or throw something at you? Did a parent or other adult in the household often or very often hit you so hard you had marks or were injured? Question three, did an adult or person at least five years older than you touch you in an inappropriate way? Have you touched them in an inappropriate way? 
or attempt to assault you in an inappropriate way. Question four. Did you often feel that no one in your family loved you or thought you were special? Did you feel like your family didn't look out for each other, feel close to each other, or support each other? Question five. Did you often feel you didn't have enough to eat, had to wear dirty clothes, and had no one to protect you, or often or very often feel that your parents were too drunk or high to take care of you or to take you to the doctor if needed? Question six, were your parents ever separated or divorced? Question seven, was your mother or stepmother often pushed, grabbed, slapped, or had something thrown at her sometimes, or often kicked, bitten, hit with a fist, or hit with something hard, ever repeatedly over at least a few minutes, uh, or threatened with a gun or knife? Question eight, did you live with anyone who was a problem drinker or alcoholic who used street drugs? Question nine, when a household mem- was a household member depressed, mentally ill, or did a household member attempt suicide? And question 10, did a household member go to prison? Each question on the ACES survey has the same value of one. And one of the interesting things about the influence of early life adverse experience is that there are some things we would not assume to be equal to other things on that survey if we didn't hear some research that said, hey, these two things are equal. And I have people come to my office all the time and say, Trent, I can't figure out why I'm struggling so hard in life. I haven't been assaulted or the victim of a violent crime and I didn't have a parent who was incarcerated. But what about feeling that nobody supported or loved you? What about feeling like you didn't have enough to eat or uh, clean clothes to wear? What if your parents are divorced? And people will push back on me and they'll, they'll say, yeah, Trent, but even though my parents divorced, we still had you know, food on the table or um, you know, I didn't feel like nobody really supported me, but nobody really hit me. And so what's helpful to know is that trauma comes in all shapes and sizes and that you don't have a choice but to respond to pain in a way that might relieve it. So the outcome of this study is just startling there's a 460% increase in the prevalence of major depressive disorder for people who have four or more ACEs in early childhood. 1,220% greater frequency of suicidal ideation or suicide attempt if you have three or more ACEs. If a male has six or more ACEs, 4,600% greater likelihood that individual will use intravenous drugs. And if you have six or more ACEs, that reduces life expectancy by 20 years on average. So what is it that makes that make sense? Why is it that early childhood pain has such an influence decades later? It's your pain relief seeking compulsion. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say I'm 10 years old and come from a divorced family. And both of my parents work and I ride the bus to and from their houses. And every time I get to one of my parents' homes, I'm by myself until that parent gets off work. Common occurrence in the United States. And let's say this particular day, I was bullied brutally at school. And I am watching the clock tick by, desperate to get home and shut the front door behind me. 
School gets out, I get on the bus, I get to my house, front door shuts behind me, and I feel in that moment what every 10-year-old feels when they get home from school, I'm hungry. And so I go to the cupboard and look for a snack and I find Dr. T's favorite indulgence, a honey bun, manna from heaven. So I grab the honey bun, I unwrap it, and I eat it quickly. And I get the expected primary benefit of hunger satisfaction. But unexpectedly, I get a very powerful secondary benefit in that moment. As my body metabolizes the sugar from the honey bun, my brain releases some chemicals that have a really slight numbing effect on my emotional pain. So I eat the whole box, not because I'm hungry, but because my brain has just learned how to relieve emotional pain. I don't tell anybody about it. I go to sleep that night. I wake up the next morning and I go to school. And I walk into the classroom with those rude, hurtful kids. And immediately they say rude, hurtful things. And I feel the same kind of pain I felt the day before. But this time, something's different in my body. In response to the way I feel, suddenly I notice that I'm hungry and I can taste something in my mouth. What is that, Trace Church? It's a honey bun. Fast forward the tape 40 years. I walk into the San Diego Department of Preventative Medicine's weight loss clinic and I tell the doctors I cannot stop buying honey buns. I want to, I know they're the problem. I've tried everything I possibly can and nothing seems to work. And after the ACEs study, those doctors said, the reason you crave honey buns is because you've been wounded, not because you have an unsatisfiable appetite for sugar. Revolutionized medical science. And today, and this is a statement of fact, we know that the most significant influence of overall health in adulthood is adverse experience in childhood. So you could replace in that story anything you wanted to with a honey bun. And I hope in your journey, Trace, what you replace a honey bun with is life-giving and rooted in the truth of God and restorative and redemptive. Unfortunately, in life, this side of heaven, many of us substitute for the honey bun things like drugs, alcohol, sexual acting out, gambling, relationships, or any other variety of things that instead of making the pain we feel improve and, and lessen, it just compounds our pain. So that's the definition of addiction as far as Dr. T is concerned. Addiction is the compulsive seeking of pain relief using a means that only compounds and adds to the pain. And when that happens, a person gets locked in an addictive cycle. It's extremely difficult to break. I should know. I was the worst scumbag junkie addict you would have ever met. And I mean that with all the honesty I can muster. 
About 2,000 years ago, there was a town called Ephesus and there was a group of people who were locked in a cycle like this. And there was a follower of Jesus who noticed these people in Ephesus locked in a cycle like this. And he writes a letter to some of his friends in Ephesus to warn them, hey, don't do what these guys are doing. Don't fall into the trap of this same cycle. Here's what's going on. And so in Ephesians chapter four, verse 17, this is what the apostle Paul tells a really young group of Christians in Ephesus. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from God and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, step three, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. So I mapped this out just so we could see a visual of what this looks like in real life. In your life, you will experience a, a darkening of understanding moment. And you're gonna experience those repeatedly. What are those, Trent? They're one of two things. First are moments in life the enemy tries to deceive you and get you to question the truth of God. So the first thing that happens often in life when our understanding is darkened is the enemy works on deceiving us. That's Genesis 3.13, that's exactly what happens. God looks at Eve and says, Eve, what is this you have done? She said, the serpent deceived me and I ate from the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And so deception from the enemy is a darkened understanding moment that you have to watch for. Second is a moment of profound pain. Each of those things cause you to question truth. When I'm talking about profound pain and its influence on our questioning of God's truth, I reference Psalm 13, just real quick. King David has killed Goliath, demonstrated he's the baddest dude around. Just so happens to make his way to Goliath's people and find himself in the presence of Goliath's king, Ashish of Gath. And David realizes if these guys figure out who I am and that I killed their champion, they're gonna have my head on a platter. So he pretends to be insane. They kick him out of the courts and he goes to hide out in a cave in a place called Adullam. He is alone, helpless, and in pain. And he writes Psalm 13 and he's just like, God, where are you? God, when is this gonna stop? God, how can I relieve this pain? And that's our response too. And from there, the second step in the addiction cycle is hardening of heart. So this is when we go from truth being questioned to truth being dismissed. We just overlook it. We just write it off as not that important. We just dismiss it. And so our thinking starts to change. And what do we think about things that we once held as, as true when we're in this stage? We use rationalization or justification or normalization to say, I got this under control. This is not that big of a deal. I'm older and wiser now. I have accountability. I'm not as bad as this person. 
And as our thinking changes and we use those means of rationalization and justification, we also change our narrative about the thing that we're doing to relieve our pain that we shouldn't. And it starts to become okay. Eventually we lose our sensitivity to the truth and that's when truth becomes lie. And this is recorded in the scriptures, Romans chapter one, verse 25. Same guy who wrote Ephesians says, man, there are people walking around planet earth who have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. For them, lies are true and truth is lie. And they're championing the lie is truth and combative against anybody who would tell them otherwise. I had a mentor who often told the story of a, an Indian chief who had been observed by a brave in the village and the brave approached the chief and says, chief, I've watched you for a long time and in life, it looks like you always make the right decision. How is it that you never seem to make a bad decision? And the chief says to the brave, well, it's like there are two dogs fighting in my chest. You probably heard this. And the, the decision I make has everything to do with which dog wins the fight in that moment. So the brave's like, okay, but how is it that the good dog seems to always win? And the chief's like, the dog that wins is the dog that gets fed the most. So the brave goes back, lives life for a bit and comes back to the chief. He's like, all right, chief, that worked, but I still am making mistakes. How do I, how do I stop making mistakes and the good dog always win? And the chief says, starve the bad dog. So the brave comes back and he says, chief, that's right. It worked, but what would happen if I did the opposite? And the chief says to the brave, eventually the bad dog would become the good dog. And when that paradigm shift occurs, people give themselves over completely to their addiction, immersion in sin. In the Greek in Ephesians 4, it's a continual lust for more, an unsatisfiable completely out of control, unmanageable, full-blown addiction. And there's not many things more miserable in life this side of heaven than that. And if I'm being honest, when I was at my worst, I did not deserve kindness, grace, and especially not love. But the only thing that really reached me at the depths of my despair was the unconditional scandalous love of God. And that's the most transformational force, motivating force, powerful force in the universe. That's what Paul goes on to describe in this letter to his friends in Ephesus. He's like, don't get caught in the addiction cycle, get caught in a freedom cycle. And here's what that looks like back in Ephesians 4. And I extracted some verses. This is 21 through 32. Paul tells his friends, you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. First thing. Second thing, a couple of verses later, be made new in the attitudes of your mind. Next thing, a couple of verses later, be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other. Fourth thing, verse 32, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Here's what the four steps of the freedom cycle look like. First, embrace truth. Here's what I mean by this, Trace. I've been doing addiction recovery treatment and owned addiction recovery centers for over a decade. And you can't break free from addiction until you acknowledge the truth that Jesus Christ is the son of God, 
the savior of the world and are willing to surrender your life to that truth. You can get locked up, medicated, counseled, preached at, and nothing will work until that one truth has been embraced. And when it has, unimaginable transformation is possible. John 14, six, that's why Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. John 8, 32, that's why Jesus says, the truth will set you free. Two other truths that you have to embrace. First is your brokenness. Man, I was the worst at being the best at telling myself I wasn't broken. But man, when I finally had to face my brokenness head on, transformation was possible. Honest about your brokenness and an acceptance of the truth that no matter how broken you feel, you are unconditionally loved by God. There is no brokenness that takes you outside the reach and scope of God's unconditional love for you. So that's the truth Paul's telling the people in Ephesus that they've been taught. He's like, embrace that truth. You're messed up. Jesus is not. Surrender your life to him. He's the savior of the world. Live by those truths. Second thing Paul says is be made new in the attitude of your mind. An inner transformation is the next step. So if you're out there and you're hurting and you're thinking, Trent, what do I need to do? Embrace truth, step one. Step two, win the battle within. And there's lots of things I could say about this. I'm gonna say too, to oversimplify. First, by the spirit that resurrected Christ from the dead, you can take every thought captive in obedience to Jesus Christ. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse five. So that's part of the process is taking thoughts captive. The second thought is not just controlling your thoughts and white knuckling them, but redirecting your thoughts to healthy things, which is what Paul directs us to do in Philippians chapter four, verse eight good, noble, trustworthy, praiseworthy things, all the things that are of good report. Think about those things. And as you do, you'll experience healing within and transformation within. If you stay on that track as that inner transformation occurs, you'll begin to notice some things change in your external world. Your, your behavior is a little bit, will become a little bit different. And I, I, I want you to replace old bad habits with new healthy rhythms. I could tell you a hundred things to do as far as that's concerned, but none of those are relevant unless they would work for you. And if you start by embracing truth and take the next step of inner transformation, God will reveal some of that to you. And then you get to do what you were created to do, Trace, and live on mission. And man, if, I, if you'd have caught me 18 years ago and you'd have said, Trent, someday you're gonna be living in Colorado Springs in a church that you stinking love because you're way tougher and more handsome than the lead pastor. <laughs> Aaron, if you're watching, I mean that with every ounce of strength I can muster. <laughs> I get to teach at a university in a counseling program, training men and women how to help other people, happily married to the woman of my dreams, three awesome kids, I would have laughed at you. And man, this is all what I always wanted. And I found my purpose in Jesus Christ after he transformed me within and some changed things outside. And I found the place that I belong. And I found the people I belong with. And I want that for you. And even more than I do, God wants that 
for you. Today, I want you to know that the pain you feel is what's responsible for the pain relief seeking behavior you do. So I want you to be gentle with yourself and honest with yourself and open with yourself and receive the truth from me that if Trent can change, anybody can change. I want to share the last part of my story with you guys. Watch this. So I show up to church and I looked a lot different than I do today. I had these taper spike earrings in, you know, black nail polish, a mohawk. Looked really rough. I would fit in well at Trace Church, did not fit in well at the church I showed up to. Um, and there was a, an evangelist preaching a lesson on being a contender or a pretender for Christ. And as he was preaching, I thought to myself, man, I've always been the biggest pretender on the planet. Like, I have no skills in life. I have no uh, high school degree. I have no work history to show for myself. I'm 21 years old and I'm just a train wreck. I'm a pretender, always trying to be something that I'm not. The preacher said, if you uh, would like prayer, raise your hand. My hand's going up and I like look at my hand and I look up at this guy as my hand's going up. And he's like, if you raised your hand for prayer and he is like standing on stage right in front of me. It's like, if you raised your hand for prayer, I want you to come up and let me pray for you, come forward. And as God is my witness, like something came over me and I just start getting out of my chair. And so I'm walking down the center aisle and my family is sitting right here. You know, it's holiday season. And they thought I was gonna leave the service or something. And they see me walk past them and they like look at me and I look at them and they look at me and I look at them and we all just break. And so they're like, this is a miracle, you know, Trent shouldn't even be alive today. And from that day, I've surrendered my life to Jesus Christ and his love has transformed my heart. And I have been free from addiction um, for the last 18 years as of December 2nd, 2022. And people will ask me like, Trent, how do you, how did you do it? And I'm like, well, I think my addiction started because I was seeking relief from overwhelming underlying emotional pain that wasn't my fault, but did need to become my responsibility. And the unconditional love of Jesus Christ is the thing that healed the pain that I had tried every possible way you can imagine and some you can't to heal. And so that's the secret. Like the love of Jesus Christ really is the way to resolve underlying emotional pain. And I'm a walking testimony that Jesus is alive, his love is transformational, and that anybody, if I can change, anybody can break their cycle. To our response time this morning, Trace, I want to reiterate something that I said there because I think it's that important. Your pain is not your fault. And I get people that push back against me. Yeah, well, Trent, I screwed up in this one area and it had a consequence that really hurt me. And I'm like, I am confident I could show you how that was the sum total of things that happened prior to that moment that weren't on you. If you disagree with that, Call me, I'll convince you. Your pain's not your fault, but you should take responsibility for how you respond to it. 
And so that's gonna be my ask as we move into response, our response time uh, today, Trace. So to take responsibility for your pain first, if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and, and been obedient in baptism, we have white towels at both sides of the stage that I, if that's you and God's moving on your heart to surrender today and get a new start and embrace the truth that would transform your life, if you snag a towel and meet with us out at Next Steps, we would love to take you through that process of surrender and baptism. If that's you, that's my ask today. And I'm gonna leverage some agony I endured in my addiction to motivate you. I have lost seven of my closest friends or mentees or clients over the last 18 years to addiction. There is no time to waste. The second ask, if you are a follower of Jesus, but you are struggling, there's so many things I wanna say to you, but what I am gonna say is get out of your head. Stop beating yourself up and accept the grace and love and forgiveness of God today. And when you do that and repent, Psalm 103.12, as far as the East is from the West, God will remove your transgression from you. It happens just like that. So that's my ask as we move into our response time. If you're caught in a cycle of pain relief seeking behavior and you're ready to get into a freedom cycle, repent, ask for forgiveness and be gentle with yourself. And the third group in our audience today I wanna to address are those of you that are living in freedom and following Jesus. Just tell you I'm proud of you and I'm thankful for you. And if that's you, I want you to really seriously consider serving in some capacity at Trace so that you can love on the people God has called you here to love on as we say in the South. So when we move into our response time, if you're group A, I'd love for you to come get a towel. If you're group B, I'm asking you to pray a prayer of repentance, ask for God's forgiveness and be graceful to yourself. And if you're group C, ask God to reveal to you a way you could serve somebody who's struggling with this kind of stuff. After I pray, there are four stations set uh, up around this auditorium where you can uh, walk over and get communion. And I hope that you, you have found a little bit of a renewed sense of peace and healing after today. And I'd like for you to meditate on that as you take the juice and cracker that symbolize Jesus's loving sacrifice for each of you. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, thanks so much for your love for me. Thanks that no matter how broken and messed up I was, I was never outside the scope of your love. And you love everybody throughout time with that same unconditional love. And I'm asking that those who have never experienced that would surrender to you today and pick up a towel and begin their journey to freedom. And those who have, but are really struggling, I'm just asking that they would repent. And when they do, we know you remove their transgression and I want them to be gentle with themselves today and for the rest of their lives. I'm asking for those who are living in freedom that they would just double down and serve and love people so that they can be conduits for the transformational unconditional love you wanna show 
to help people break their cycle. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for all you're doing in our church and our community and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.